as a parent, you're an advocator. You're not the avoider, not the aggressor. You're someone who stands in the gap and is bracing where your child is at, where they're developing, where the growing pains are, where some of those struggles are, and how you can then help them navigate with a biblical worldview. That's Jason Jimenez sharing great advice about how to deal with difficult situations surrounding sexual identity, which is one of the hottest topics in the culture right now. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to cover it on this episode of Refocus with Jim Daly. And I know Jason's going to give all of us a window into how Gen Z thinks and issues they might be struggling with, but most importantly, help you reach them for Christ. This conversation will especially be helpful for parents of Gen Z children. I have two sons smack dab in that category, but it can also be good information for anyone interacting with young people. Jason and his wife have four Gen Z children, and he's worked with a lot of young people and parents through the years. I'm really excited to feature him on the podcast today. These are the kinds of conversations I enjoy having on Refocus. They energize me. It's where I'm living. And I want to be able to help you grow as a Christian and better learn how to demonstrate God's grace and love as you engage others in the culture, including your own children. I'm optimistic about young people today because I believe God can call Gen Z and Generation Alpha to change the culture and point it to Christ. So parents, grandparents, mentors, be encouraged. Jason Jimenez is the founder of Stand Strong Ministries and author of Parenting Gen Z, Guiding Your Child Through a Hostile Culture. I started the discussion by asking Jason, what stands out about Gen Z from past generations? And we'll jump in with his answer now on Refocus with Jim Daly. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, having four Gen Zers, you know, roughly, like I said, late 1990s, you know, into mid 2012, 2015, right? Before, you know, President Trump became, you know, president 2016. What's different actually to even millennials is that Gen Z are a lot more anxious than any previous generation. They, let, let, let's talk about that. Why yeah. is that? Well, one reason is because most of them actually come from more broken families. Mm. There's over 10 to 12 million Gen Zers who actually come from single families, and 80% of those single families are led by just a single mom. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you add all the technology. Since this generation was born, all they've known is social media devices, right? And so learning how to communicate effectively isn't something they do as well. And friendships is, is really an art that they do not know how to achieve or to produce in their own life. Mm. So the loneliness, the despair, a lot of them struggle in their own identity and even figuring out what that is. That's why the sexuality revolution that's coming about where you define yourself you know, through terms of your sexual desires or your predilections has become a big frontal uh, case for a lot of young people. So this creates more anxiety in their lives. And then, of course, sadly, what we actually see when you trace Gen Z, unlike any other generation, a lot of them don't actually get a lot of sleep. So that's adding to the deprivation that we're seeing among this generation. Wow. It sounds bleak. It, it does sound bleak. But at the same time, and I talk about this in the book, is one quality that I've seen with parenting Gen Z is the creativity and the curiosity that consists with them. One thing that's also amazing about Gen Z is that they're homebodies, meaning they love to be invested in family. Mm-hmm. And they're actually more in tune with reading and going outside of their opinions to learn things that maybe run contrary to what they believe to be true. 
Yeah. You know, I was at an event uh, speaking and we did a panel discussion as part of the overall event. And there were three of us Christian leaders on the stage being interviewed by John Stone Street of the Colson Center. Mm -hmm. And one, I don't want to out the person, but uh, John asked the question, you know, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the next generation? And this one particular guest said, oh, very pessimistic. Mm. And, And then the event ended. I didn't get a chance to jump out there. And what I wanted to say was, you know, when we as the older Christian community say those kinds of things. There's there's always going to be weaknesses in every generation, but certainly life gives you maturity and wisdom. So we're talking about teens and 20-somethings, mm-hmm. you know, where were you mm-hmm. in that phase mm-hmm. of your life? But I was thinking, boy, if we say that we're really anxious about this next generation, we're really saying we don't trust God for putting the souls on this planet at the moment he wants them here. Mm-hmm. I'd rather trust God that he's got the right people in place you know, maturing them along the journey. So they're going to be the bold witnesses that he needs at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's a much healthier way to look at it. Well, yeah, and I agree with you, Jim. And if you look at it, biblically speaking, if you look at the advancement of the gospel that's being spread during the Roman imperialistic age, that was a lot more bleak, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Than what we are currently facing today in opposition. You talk about the sexual predilections back then. You want to talk about the paganistic roots, the movement, the hostility, the persecution. Yet you don't see this hopelessness that Paul and the other apostles had in advancing the gospel. And that's where he goes back to Romans 5, 4, which I actually see where, and I was just with, with a group of 200 students last night who are Gen Zers, they want to see people of character. Mm. Authenticity. And when, authenticity. Yep. And so when we see, we see in Romans 5, 4, that when we are patient, when we go through endurance, it produces character and character hope. So when you actually see some character that's resonating among young people, Hmm. and there's this level of trying to achieve not just integrity, but with that maturity, it gets them really excited. So I would actually go contrary to that guest, you know, God love them. Yeah, yeah. But leaving people on a negative note only feeds the fire of negativity and criticism. Well, and and to that point, the culture is feasting on negativity, cable news. You know, it's all about pitting people against each other, no matter what channel you're watching. But leave that to the side for the minute. Now, in the book, you've described eight characteristics Mm -hmm. that uh, get to the Gen Z descriptors. Two of those are divergent identity and ethnic diversity. So let's hit those two and talk about that. Yeah, so going back to the previous question, what is different among this generation than previous ones? Well, the first characteristic is I give a divergent one. It's like the movie Divergent. You know, the whole thing is that people are categorized in their specialty and what they can contribute to society. What you actually find with parenting this generation is they're very diverse in their personalities and their approach to life because of the advancements of technology, the access that they have to all sorts of voices and opinions. And so that is one thing that is unique about them. It's like, think about all the different, I use this as an example. Think of all the different platforms that are out there where people use Facebook to Instagram, to TikTok, et cetera. They all have a particular specialty attached to them as to why people use them, right? Mm-hmm. Something unique about it. That's what is really speaks volumes of Gen Z is that they have these unique qualities that they can manifest in different ways that we never had, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Now, the ethnic diversity One thing that we're clearly seeing with Generation Z is that Caucasians are the minority. I'm biracial, so growing up in a family of a white mom and a Mexican dad, I grew up in diversity. 
you know, the difference between how middle and the Midwest people eat food, you know, and socialize versus how Mexicans from Mexico, you know, who are raised Catholic, how they socialized. And the beauty of that diversity, complicated at times, right? <laughs> between the two families, the Morris family, the Jimenez family. But that's one thing that you see when you are around uh, Gen Z is the diversity ethnically and nationally that is possessed within this generation. It's a beautiful thing. And going back to what we we're saying earlier, what I actually see is God using this generation with their diversity to reach more people for Christ. Yeah. A third one that you mentioned in the book of the eight is progressive. Yeah. That progressive mentality. Mm-hmm. How do you describe that? Yeah. So progressive, again, everybody has their different terminology of progressive. And it's, we're not talking about progressive insurance, obviously, but progressive meaning that they are not as conservative in their thinking. So their mentality, first and foremost, is over 30% of Gen Z believe that you determine your own gender or sexuality over time. 30%. Yeah, that's a progressive view of denying basically ultimate reality or biology based on science, right? So that's a progressive mentality going beyond the, quote, facts of reality that we see. Another progressive mentality among them is, again, they're not buying into natural marriage, that love wins. You know, so it's progressive in that kind of view. And so that progressive mentality also feeds into not just their cultural way of living and what they buy and who they hang out with, but how they're eventually going to be voting and this more progressive socialistic understanding of what the role of government is in society. Yeah, there's an old saying that goes, if you're not a liberal at 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative at 35, you have no brain. I mean, how many people wrote, you know, pretty uh, progressive papers in college, probably just about everybody. It's kind of the natural course to some degree. And then as life hits you, you begin to get a little wiser about human behavior. But Jim, if I could say something, because this is important, because I don't want to say by using that descriptive term Mm -hmm. progressive mentality that all of them are that's in certain areas where they're conservative more than millennials is that they don't cohabit as much they're they're committed to family there's not this there's not this open relationship sexually there's more fidelity among gen z as they're considering not necessarily options which most of them will struggle i just talked to a 20 year old something with her parents yesterday and she's struggling dating because she doesn't see godly men, godly young men that have direction, have maturity. They, she sees them as very immature and very self-centered. So with Gen Z, even though there's a progressive mentality in some areas, there's a conservative value that consists with a lot of them, in particular when it comes to relationships. Yeah. There's been some research just coming out right now showing where young men, probably early 20s, late teens, are trending more conservative and women more mm-hmm. progressive. Mm-hmm. So even in that, I think mm-hmm. young men are starting to feel the pressure of being discarded in the culture, right? Right. Yeah, I definitely have seen that. And it, the data is starting to mm-hmm. show that they're becoming more conservative toward government, yep. toward other And issues. that's the form of the emasculating of manhood. Yeah. And this goes back to, and we know here in the ministry of Focus on the Family, emphasizing the need for godly men to train up their children the ways of the Lord according to Ephesians 6, 4. So a lot of this younger generation of men have never really had that. Yeah. Going back to that progressive mentality, I think in the book you had uh, two students who asked you a question over a Zoom call, if I remember correctly. What was the question they asked and how did you manage that question? Yeah. So what I like to do as a Christian apologist uh, is engage young people on various different topics. And this one in particular that I mentioned in the book to show the progressive mentality is people's views of the role of government, including abortion, Mm. 
right? What role that a lot of them believe abortion facilities, clinics actually offer. And many of them believe that they're producing like plant parenthood, that they're providing a service to women, not just their rights to have an abortion, but they do other, you know, health Help. quality, yeah. you know, things that, uh, that are good. And so there was a debate that was brewing between these uh, students about, know that their primary duty is abortion and that's a moral evil and there's other people defending those rights yet at the same time claiming that they're a christian that was really the debate and i allowed it to go to kind of see how pro-life and pro-choicers you know are debating this under the umbrella of christianity because most all the students that i was uh, training in biblical worldview studies were professing believers Right. That's why they're taking this course. So how did you give that response once you did give a response or did you? Yeah, I did. I did. One, I always believe in allowing there to be pushback. Yeah, it's good. And not being intimidated by the people's point of view. One thing that's important to understand is the gospels clearly, as you know, is in Jesus Christ is not saying in order to become a Christian, you have to be pro-life. Right. So there's a lot of people who are biblically literate. Right, Jim. They know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. But as Paul identifies to some Christians in the category in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, they're carnal. Or the writer in Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14, they're unskilled because they're immature. They don't know. So when I started to address this, okay, so here's the premise you guys are saying as Christians, you think it's you know, to show love to someone, they should have a right to abort a child. The question is, is what is that thing, right, in the womb? Right. And as Christians, what value do we have on human beings? And one of the things I also address in the book, which I was bringing into this discussion, I said, do we all believe that humans have intrinsic value? Everybody on that Zoom call, all these Gen Zers said, well, yes, including the pro-choice people. So I said, okay, so we find common ground that we believe that all human beings have intrinsic value. Is that a Judeo-Christian ethic? Yes. Okay. That's beyond just our subjective feelings about human beings. We believe that's something that's objective. Number two is... The preborn is a human being based on the science of embryology. If preborn are human beings, and guess what preborn have in the womb? Intrinsic value. So now we then push back on the pro-choicers and say, listen, as Christians, when you're advancing a pro-choice methodology and ideology, you're actually undermining the very premise of understanding what a human being is made in the image of God. And you're putting the rights of a human that the government supposedly has given that clearly undermines the value of a human being. And as Christians, our duty is to protect all life. That's when they start understanding that if that life is truly a human being in the womb and not just a thing, just a blob, right? And the woman's choice does not trump the right of a human being existing, then there was actually saying, I've never thought of it that way. But it was done in a very cordial, like let's just look at it. And here's the key thing is, teaching young people how to critically think Correct. through uh, what they say they believe. And I did it in a way where there was no debate and everybody paused and a lot of them actually openly said, I never thought of it that yeah, way. Yeah, light bulbs went off, exactly. which is a great way to do that. Right, Jason, one of the key characteristics uh, to understand about Gen Z is what you called emotional instability. So again, that's one of the eight. What are you getting at with that yeah, term? Yeah, so I think this is actually, Jim, pastorally and also as a father for in spending over 25 years working with millennials and Gen Z, this is definitely the probably one of the biggest things that we have to focus a little bit more in. Anything that springs from depression, loneliness, suicidal thoughts, um, no direction, like directionless, or when you have a young person who feels 
like their life has no purpose or meaning, all of it stems from emotional instability. They don't know how to process conflict. One thing that is certainly the case that I've seen among a lot of young people these days is a lack of resilience. And with a lack of resilience, they don't know how to be an overcomer. And yet at the same time, what's happening is they're trying to be an overachiever in education. One thing I actually did a lot of research with clinical psychologists in writing this book with focus on the family is evaluating the pressures that creates more emotionally instability among young people. And one thing that we discovered was the pressure of what mom and dad expect from them, that they cannot achieve emotionally, right? So they kind of feel there's a little bit of abandonment issues there where they're trying to have to figure it out on their own without support and guidance, okay? That's why my key in the subtitle was guiding your child in a hostile culture. So when they don't have that, they're responding, again, in an immature way or with instability. Remember, broken family, uh, a depleted faith. They may have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're not grounded. Mm -hmm. They haven't really learned what resilience is because a lot of parents have been very overprotective and never let them fail and to learn from these things emotional crisis, like I said, a lack of friends, they feel very lonely. So again, that creates more emotional instability. I just talked to a student recently who's a loner and he says, I don't know how to engage people because I don't think I have anything to offer. That's emotional instability. He doesn't know how to work through that, what it even looks like. If he hates himself and he thinks God therefore hates him, then he's not going to be going out there and engaging people and to contribute in not just relationships, but in society. So emotional instability is a critical piece. And I always try to let people understand this. God made us as reasonable, rational human beings, but also we are emotive beings. So we can't like, again, those binary, the polarity, we can't just go one extreme and go in the other direction. What we need to do with Gen Zeros is bring reason and emotion collectively as a body soul made in the image of God. And what's happening is, the emotional instability is overriding any reason that these rational young people can have and it's eating them up. Right. Let, let's hit some of the data points that you researched because it's, you know, it's kind of breathtaking and I don't, I'm not sure if you're not doing it every day, the parents listening, mm-hmm. they're not going to know this, but speak to the percentage of that younger generation, how many are feeling depressed, anxious, suicidal ideation. I think you know, we're into it. We're looking at the data. It's the highest it's ever been for all kinds of reasons that you're relating to, but give us the numbers. Yeah. Post COVID, as we know, it's shot up over 300% when it comes to people who are suffering with a form of depression. Now, again, that could be acute mental disorder that has been uh, not diagnosed. Uh, Oftentimes with this emotional instability, if not treated in such a way to where there's care and guidance in the home, if there was a traumatic experience, which by the way, unfortunately, one thing in the data we're finding is over a third of these Gen Z people have talked about a traumatic experience like sexual abuse, uh, neglect, a or third. physical. Yeah. Wow. And so now when I was doing my research and talking to a lot of clinical psychologists and biblical counselors, just like people like we have here on staff, Danny uh, Huerta, uh, there's a waiting list. Young people can't get in because of the depression they're having. Now, not everybody who's depressed has suicidal thoughts correct? or in that form of ideation that we're experiencing with a lot of the young people as you talk to them. Another thing that's increasing in is this gender identity crisis that they're faced with. Right. That creates more turmoil in their lives, right? And I just talked to another young student recently in one of my travels and she was telling me in front of me and a colleague 
that she was not accepted at home. She was struggling and she figured, I want attention and I want to be loved. I want to be recognized. What greater way than to embrace the LGBT uh, movement? And she came out as though she's lesbian, got a girlfriend, started to have a romantic relationship at 16 years old, hid it behind uh, her parents. They didn't know what was going on until they discovered it. And the whole time she knew the Holy Spirit was convicting her saying, this is wrong. This is not the answer. She knew it was. And then sadly, she resorted to uh, trying to commit suicide on two different occasions. Mm -hmm. By the grace of God, she was spared and it was in recovering after one of her attempts that she rededicated her life to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at that, the measuring what we're seeing is more young women who are now entering college, over a quarter of them have had more than four to five to six times that they've thought through suicide. So the increase now that's happening post COVID among young people, particularly women, young women from the ages of 16 to 23 is actually higher in thoughts of suicide than young men. So this is a growing crisis that we are seeing, Jim, as you guys know, that is happening among Gen Z. And a lot of it stems back to, again, emotional instability. Well, and this issue of sexual fluidity, you know, it's been a tsunami, you know, it, it, I think the seeds were sown for many years and then all of a sudden it broke loose like a dam breaking loose mm-hmm. and it's flooding the culture all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And in that context, the sexual fluidity, one of the things I've been really intrigued by is the detransitioners. These are people, mostly women, mostly in their early 20s who went full bore to do uh, double mastectomy, hysterectomy at age 15, 16, 17 because they were talked to by school administrators, school counselors, people outside of their parental reference who encouraged them to pursue a, a transsexual fix to their gender dysphoria. And when you, when you think about this, I've called it a war on children. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like the elites are definitely targeting kids mm-hmm. for all kinds of purposes. But when you talk to these detransitioners, which I've done and I wanna continue to, what they'll say, and they're mostly the girls who are seeing the male role as the dominant role, so I want to be that. I don't want to be a f- female. And at 13, 14, they're making these you know, lifelong decisions to mutilate their body, take hormones that really hurt them long term. And what consistently they are saying is, I was looking for acceptance mm-hmm. and love. That's what I needed. I didn't know I had to give up my body to get that. Mm-hmm. And I was too young to formulate that. So now they're 20, 21, 22, writing books about what immorality exists in these people that are leading these children in that direction. And now you look at Europe, Europe is running away from it. There's so many lawsuits against the establishment, the schools, the hospitals that have done this, that they're closing down these experimental uh, treatment centers for minors to do sexual transition. And here we are in the U.S. running headlong into doing it better, mm-hmm. which is so ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's harmful. It is harmful. And to your point, Jim, the sad reality is they think that they have a human right to do this. That they're doing the benefit. That they're doing they're the benefit benefiting of yeah. the kids. Yeah. And they're harming the kids. And they're thinking now the emotional instability that we're seeing or the depression that has increased among this generation, they're saying an answer to this is because of this gender dysphoria or this gender identity crisis that we're among. So let's help them by using the advances in science, hormone blockers, you know, puberty blockers, whatever the case may be, to help them become who they are meant to be. 
right. according to their feelings. Right. Well, if you look at their feelings and you talk to them, it's all over the map. And the sad reality is, even if a young person is not in a structure of a family or guided with strong faith, with biblical structure, even as they get out into their late teens and they struggle with some form of trans ideation or gender dysphoria, they will grow out of it. Right. Over 80% of them. Yeah. But what is different among this generation now is we're seeing this engineering among an institutionalized system of healthcare led by the government in school systems that are indoctrinating to believe that not only do you determine your own gender because you're assigned a sex at birth, which is not biblical, right? And we do not embrace. Um, but they're saying as a result, when the time comes, you have a right for the government to pay for that transition. Right. And that's why they call it gender affirming surgery now because it's all about the individual. Right. And again, it's dangerous and we'll see this continue to roll. I have absolute confidence that God's truth cannot be covered up by this world's dirt. And yeah, in amen. that, I think it will rise like it is in Europe, yeah. Norway, Sweden, UK, all abandoning these kind of uh, surgical procedures and chemical procedures for minors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. We should be there as well. Jason, you have a story about a couple who came to you for advice on parenting uh, their kids who were claiming to be LGBT identified. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice do you give a parent when their middle schooler or high schooler says this? Yeah. You know, Jim, obviously it depends on the family, depends on the situation. This particular one, I'll never forget. It broke my heart because a father, I didn't even talk. My talk was actually on suffering, which mm. actually resonated because he was suffering because yeah. his eldest daughter of five what came out as trans, a trans man. She was living that for several years. And, and what was happening was the younger daughters who looked up, of course, yeah, to their the older, older sister, sister, they were heartbroken and then it became distance in the family. So he approached me and said, can we have a discussion at some point? The conference was over. I said, meet me over here by where the books were being sold. And he brought his wife and all of his daughters. I didn't realize oh, wow. that all four of the other ones are gonna be there. So as they shared with me about their eldest daughter and all the decisions she was making and being in a relationship I, with a guy or girl, and then she was wanting to be in transition, they didn't know as a Christian family what they should do. One of the things I said, well, let's just talk about where your daughter is at in terms of her, not just her sexuality, but this trans ideation kind of stuff. How did this spark? What happened? And as, they, as we discovered their story, Jim, one of the things that I clearly got from this family was they had no direction what they should do. And I said, listen, let me tell you guys something. This is so important for parents to understand because more and more, unfortunately, parents and grandparents are dealing with these situations yeah. and even siblings. I get emails in our ministry from siblings, from brothers and sisters saying, how do I treat my my sibling who's gay or trans or whatever the case may be. Well, in this case, this family, this is what they're asking. How do we befriend? How do we keep a relationship with our daughter? Do we approve of her quote unquote lifestyle? If we invite her over for a holiday meal or even invite her over for a birthday. And if we do, what does that look like? And so I said, let me give you guys an understanding very quickly. Number one, there's a difference between approval and acceptance. Okay, you approve of who your daughter is because she is made in the image of God and she's your daughter and she will always be your daughter no matter what she believes about her sexuality or her identity. Number two, when it comes to accepting, that doesn't mean that you accept everything she believes. Jesus loves all people, but he doesn't love all ideas or beliefs or deeds. So one of the things that's clear about what's happening with your daughter is she's being very defiant 
and she's trying to indoctrinate her younger sisters. So if that continues, you have to disinvite her and put boundaries in place, not because she's trans, but because she's being defiant to your guys' set of rules. Mm -hmm. So as you guys look at that, the thing that you can communicate to her is if you continue to be disrespectful and undermine us and try to indoctrinate your sisters who you say you love, then we have to have some separation. Not because they're trans, because that's what she kept using. Well, you don't want me to come over here because I'm trans and you don't accept that. I said, no, you approve of her because you love her. But the reason you have to set boundaries is because of her behavior, not necessarily her lifestyle. That alone helps people understand because most people think, well, if you bring them in, are you approving of everything and accepting of everything? And that's not always the case. And that is a helpful way in the midst of this confusion where parents find themselves to still be present among your child who's confused, but also be a conveyor of God's truth in the midst of it. Yeah. Uh, you have some very particular ways that parents might want to consider parenting, mm -hmm. and you created an acronym, LOVE. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't love love? I mean, <laughs> we should as Christians be enamored with love because Jesus said mm -hmm. it's love. Mm -hmm. um, so how does the acronym LOVE, what does it mean, and how do you apply it in your parenting? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the attempts I try to do in that particular chapter was to help families, again, very discombobulated you know, you got blended families, which is becoming the norm among Gen Zers. And so a lot of times when it comes to guiding and directing your family, it's kind of all over the map, right? And you're hoping that maybe if you got church in the equation, it's going to help kind of offset some of those pressures. So one of the things is I want to help parents on the go, mm -hmm. especially if there's blended families, step parents involved is to think of a motto. So what I've done in my family is I put together this acronym LOVE. And it stands for laugh, open, value, and encourage. And what we do there now is every single day when you're on the go, you just evaluate how to love your family, right? Think about it. They're in good hands with you as a mom or a dad. One is, are you laughing with your kids? Have you done that this week? How are you looking to engage them and entertain? Laughing is medicine. Let me ask you about that. I mean, I, I enjoy that. And that's part of you know, I like to look at life and laugh mm -hmm. because yeah. it, it's good. It's medicine. And, uh, but I can understand two more serious people frown on that. Their personalities may not be given toward uh, frivolity. <laughs> yeah. know? And I get that, you know, a person who's more scientific, engineering minded, their senses of humor can be not as, as big. So it's not about guilt though. How do right. you coach somebody who isn't naturally a laugher and a humorous person. Yeah, and that's a good question. And that, that is the case. A lot of times we engage parents, a lot of times they have difficulty with that. You know, their personality is dry and the kids know that, right? So they don't think that their mom or their dad is fun. They're just very strict and boring, okay? I totally get that. But there are ways around that. The first thing I talk about in the book when it comes to laughing is remember yourself as a child, right? <laughs> I mean, if there were things, moments in your life of people you thought were funny, why? I'm not saying mimic them, but there are people in our life that we love, Jim, that were laughable, that really drew us in and, and told good stories. Find things that you can laugh about. And one thing's, guess what? If you're a little hard-nosed or strict and rigid, sometimes your kids, if they can poke fun at you, right? Let them, let them do that. If, if you're a little self-deprecating, sometimes use that as funny moments. But look to try to do that as a way to engage your kids and to have fun. Okay, that's key. 
And then I would actually say a more difficult challenge for a lot of parents is to be open. What I mean by that is looking for opportunities to be vulnerable with your children, letting them know that you struggle, letting them know there's times that you've struggled in your faith, that you've had doubts and how you learn to overcome those kind of things. Be open about challenges in relationships. When your son or daughter is going through a situation right now and they're trying to figure things out and you have to give them room to figure it out, give them open opportunity to you know, think things through and show signs of maturity and take responsibility. You can let them know that there are times in your own life where you made mistakes and how you learned from your failures. That's being open, making sure that you are engaging that way. Mm-hmm. And then V is value. Every family member has value and everybody in this family has something to contribute, to build into the family. Our jobs as parents, as we instruct them in the ways of the Lord, is to always value who that person is, meaning where that child is, right? In the order of how they came, even if there's a blended family. And the last one is encourage. Who doesn't and, need more encouragement? And speak to that, particularly with Gen Z, why encouragement is so critical. It's so encouraging because in First Thessalonians 5, verse 11, we are told to build up one another. So one, it's at the core of our faith as Christians, but as human beings, we are designed to need encouragement. Encouragement not only brings comfort, but it also gives stability and it gives guidance. When you intentionally encourage somebody in the process as they're learning and growing, that feeds them. Go back to the Gary Chapman stuff, right? The love tank. It feeds their love tank like never before. But the more that we do it, especially coming from mom and dad, who are the most important person in a child's life, never forget that. There are a lot of parents who feel very discouraged. They feel very depleted. I have not achieved a lot of the stuff. I talked to a lot of older parents who say, I was not really that spiritual leader that I should have been when they were younger. And now that they're older, I don't know how to speak into that. You know what you can do? Find ways to encourage your son or daughter. Jason, you didn't have both parents with you all the way through growing up. Neither did I. I had a single parent mom for a few years. And, and uh, so we both experienced that. Um, what was that like for you? What do you remember about that? What were the challenges that that posed for you? Yeah, I mean, it was July 5th of 1994. I was 15 going into my sophomore year of high school. And my mom was leaving her office. She was a secretary at a Christian radio station and she was on her way to go pick up my youngest brother and she had gotten tickets through the radio station to take us to a baseball game. And this was just the day after 4th of July. So I just saw her that night and me and another brother decided to stay over at grandma's house, right? Who doesn't like staying at grandma's house? Cause she was going to make a big breakfast oh, the yeah. next morning, spoil us. Uh, and we liked staying at her house because I grew up in the desert and we didn't have AC where I grew up because I grew up poor. We had a swamp cooler. Some yeah, of your, some of your listeners, yeah, yeah, some of your listeners will know what that is. So going to ground friends and when you got into the bed, it was nice and cold and crispy, right? So we enjoyed that time. And uh, then we got a call uh, hours later when we didn't know where my mom was. She was already supposed to be there, but she never showed up, which unlike my mom was totally uncharacteristic. And that's when we got the call that the hospital reached out to my dad and she was hit. Uh, by an ambulance that was going on a call and she was taking a left turn. She had the right of way and they T-boned her helicopter had to come take her uh, flyer to the hospital. They tried to stop the bleeding, the internal bleeding, but she suffered such brain damage that if she survived from the internal bleeding as they're doing surgery on her, she would have been a vegetable. So I remember my dad took his four boys ranging from 18 to 11 years old, married for 17 years. My mom, they're on the brink of divorce though. They struggled in their marriage 
But I just remember a man who didn't really lead us in strong faith, but loved the Lord and certainly loved his kids and his family is now in this situation of crisis where he's praying, God, if you want to take my wife, my kid's mom, your will be done. Within that hour, she didn't make it. But the closest person in my life was my mom. No question. She was a beautiful woman who loved Jesus. She's only 35 at the time. Wow. But I learned in that loss that God was faithful, that God was there for me. And God used that suffrage to open the hearts of my brothers and myself, even my dad, to go deeper in our faith as we were searching for hope and healing. Mm. And so even now, all these years later, that tragedy God has used as part of my testimony to talk to families who have also had traumatic experience or have also been raised by a single parent or they have a blended family and try to help them understand those are challenges, those are difficulties, but God is faithful and he'll see you through it. So I think about her every day, I miss her, Um, but I'm thankful that through the loss I've gained, as Paul says in Philippians three, I've gained Christ more in my life. Yeah, I feel the exact same way, I really do. And it's hard to express that the people that are still carrying the burden of what their loss was. And it's the hardest question to answer. Mm-hmm. How did you let go of all that bitterness or resentment? And I, I just never really even had it. That's hard to say. Yeah, I, I never said why God, I said what God. Yeah. What do you want yeah. me to learn from this? You that know, was the key. Yeah, in that regard, uh, you know, there, we have a lot of single parents and you become a single parent in a variety of ways through divorce or through the loss uh, you have your spouse, et cetera. So you end up a single parent. What help can you give them in this regard? You know, like your dad, the situation mm-hmm. he was in, and now he's got a father and mother, four boys, right at a critical time. You're all kind of in mm-hmm. teenagehood and, and coming into teenager. So that had to be hard. Is, is there anything unique for a single parent to understand about the love concept and all the content of the book? Yeah, I mean, that that is so true, Jim. I One thing that I know for me personally, it was my dad was not equipped. I mean, within the year he got remarried. Um, I don't know that any single yeah, parent he was is not, ever yeah. equipped. He, I mean, he, it's like, wow. He, he wasn't equipped, but one thing that my dad did that was so important for us in those critical stages of our life was that he made sure that he was available for us no matter what. And that's a core principle. And that, was a, that is a huge thing. And sometimes wow. what happens with single parents is again, you have to, you have to make ends meet. So some people are having to work two jobs or having to work overtime to provide for the family because they're just a one income family. And so I know that more, anybody listening right now, all of us would love to have more time with our kids, especially if we know as time goes on, you savor those moments because you see how fast it is. One minute they're in elementary and the next, you know, they're getting married. And so one thing I encourage uh, single moms or single dads is listen, as little opportunities you may have because of your schedule, when you do have little limited time, use that time that's undistracted, right? Guard it and tell your kids and reaffirm them all the time that even though these tragedies have happened in our life, even though there's been losses, or even though you have difficulty with your dad or your mom and you're bounce around in different houses, that kind of stuff, always make sure that your home is a home of safety, refuge, and stability. And when parents do that as a single parent, but I'd also say this, you can't do it alone. So you have to make sure that your family is supported by a local church. I would agree. That is so critical. Now that goes for any family, whether it's a mom and dad, 
But you have to make sure, especially with the sanity that a lot of single parents are dealing with, you have to make sure that you have people, spiritual leaders in a church based on Titus chapter two that are modeling the faith to help you Mm. to kind of offset that because you can't be mom and dad both, Yeah. right? Sometimes you have to be that, but you have to also open yourself. And the last thing I would say with moms and dads who are parenting kids and they're single and they may not be in a relationship is you know what? You gotta make opportunity and make time to have community for yourself, right? What does that mean? What that means is that what happens oftentimes, and this is a necessary mechanism that every parent, especially moms, immediately go into is there was a tragedy. I got to protect my kids. They're everything to me. And so their entire life is devoted to the well-being of their kids. That's great, but not at the expense of exhausting yourself emotionally, spiritually, right? Yeah. And communally. So what I encourage a lot of single parents to do is make sure that you're devoting time to trusted advisors and friends in your own life that can keep you sane and that can keep you grounded and that at any given time when you're struggling, when there's an open argument with one of your kids and they undermine your authority and you don't know what to do at this point and it's reckless and you are in despair, do not sit there alone. Make sure you reach out to your church, but also to your friends who can help encourage you. Really good point. And you want to have those numbers in your phone to call. That's a good idea. And if you don't have a number to call, call us. We have counselors that can help. That's why we're here. And they can at least give you some feedback and input. Uh, Jason, we're right at the end here, but a big problem that we have in the Christian community particularly is our kids not embracing the faith. And this is all kind of tied with what we've talked about. You know, we're 40, 50-year-old parents expecting our 16-year-olds to behave like we do. Mm -hmm. And we don't remember what we were like at 16 and uh, embracing that gentle journey toward the Lord. But speak to this issue uh, where there's a distance, you know, where the kids don't want organized religion. They're turned off by it. This is a Gen Z factor. Uh, They generally don't like the orchestration of church they're they're into spiritual things but mm-hmm. they think that's too much of a concoction however they would describe mm-hmm. it you've heard them describe mm-hmm. it but just mention that and how does a parent keep the salt in front of their child so that the big issue is how do you get them to embrace the faith for themselves so they're not living off of your faith yeah but they become based in mm-hmm. the faith yeah one of the biggest things is for every parent to remember is that it's transferable faith. That's a Hebraic method. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter six and Psalm 78. And one thing that I try to tell parents, this whole notion of it's, you know, the Christian faith is caught, not taught. That's actually nonsense. That is not a phrase that we should be using. When you look at the Hebraic method and you look at Christianity, it's consistently with the conduct of living in what I have taught or instructed you over and over again. Paul talked to Titus like that. Elders are supposed to be that. You see the guardianship of instruction with fathers in Ephesians chapter six. So for parents to understand, we're making sure that we're not constructing an institutionalized evangelicalism that is embedded with a bunch of different, you know, movements and contradictions, right? That it's abhorrent to the very truth teaching of scripture. So make sure that you're not living hypocritical life. But as moms and dads, our job is to model the faith and to transfer that to the next generation. So you use the word, Jim, and I like it, embracing that. Every child at its core innately wants that. They want to be able to imitate the faith that is set before them from their mom and their dad. So that's number one. I don't think that we've done a good job 
And this isn't belittling anybody, but one thing we have to recognize, I don't think we've done a good job when we've looked to the brand of a movement, right? Uh, in evangelicalism, where it's just drawing young people and say, oh man, see, they're plugged into this great church. There's all these multi-campus satellites and this celebrity pastor and this and that kind of stuff. Great. Hopefully they're teaching the word of God, but not at the expense of them not looking to you first and foremost when it comes to their life. So that's number one. It's so critical about modeling the faith. Number two, yes, there's a lot of this rigidity. That's a main term that young people use or this fragmented faith, right? Because for them, church has been something orchestrated through the lens of like the pharmacy or a gas station, just these pick-me-ups or when I'm sick, I go and I get a prescription and boom, you know, that Z-pack, spiritual Z-pack, if you will, help resolve some type of anxiety or distress because of porn addiction. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not just this therapeutic faith that we inject when it's convenient. So what we're trying to help parents understand, because most of them are biblically illiterate, is to teach them the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Do not live a hypocritical life. Own up to the mistakes that you've made and demonstrate to your kids, what does your prayer life look like? You know, have you ever read through the Bible with your kids? And the last thing is this, most of the false portrayal of Jesus in America that is held by millennials and Gen Z, and these are self-identifying Christians, which most of them are not. They view Jesus either as a mystic or as a woke teacher who embraces all ideas and all sexuality and all ways of life. Or he was this revolutionist who was, he was reforming Judaism and he's changing the ways. And so a lot of times when young people are deconverting from the faith that they're raised in, and maybe that was a, a fragmented faith, they look at that as rigid doctrine that doesn't help advance social justice. So one thing that I try to help parents understand is in that confusion, validate their concerns, own up to some of those things, but make sure that you teach them who Jesus Christ truly is in the gospels. I mean, that that sounds like a very simple point, but when you survey parents in general who are self-professing Christians and you talk to them about where their kids are at, they've never really thoroughly I'm not just saying exhaustively, but just thoroughly evaluated the person of Jesus Christ, not just his humanity, but also his divinity. So I, I encourage every parent out there, start by exploring who Jesus is with your child, right? And separate it from the noise out there and these different institutionalized systems of celebrity pastor this and these scandals here, or, you know, if you blew it in the past, ask for forgiveness because remember God's grace is far greater than any sin that we've committed. And when you come with that type of humility, I think your kids are going to be a lot more forgiving. That's one thing I will end on this note that's so, so important if I can convey to people listening. If you've messed up, there's always grace. And your kids actually want to see that. That is a great model of faith because we know that we're born sinners mm -hmm. and we're saved by grace. Mm -hmm. This is not of ourselves. This is a gift of God. And when you convey that, live that, and transfer that, that speaks volumes to young people in this midst of confusion about, do I trust the Bible? Who is Jesus really? What about these scandals? And using all these excuses to draw away from God or deconstruct their faith when in fact, let's own it for what it is in the grace of Jesus Christ and start engaging our kids on who Jesus Christ really is. And one way is say, hey, who is Jesus to you? And if they start bringing these false portrayals, these false versions, Use that then to counter it with the truth of God's word with your kid. Ask them, invite them in if they want to be a part of that. 
That is a critical point. I just did that with a, a father in his 60s. He's now having breakfast with one of his adult children and they're going through the gospels together and they're exploring who Jesus is and they're praying together. His son is not fully there yet. He's got a lot of bitterness, but he loves the fact that he's spending time with his dad. They're eating out of a restaurant that they enjoy and they're actually <laughs> learning some things that he never knew about with Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Uh, let's end with this uh, for parents. Asking questions is such an art. And it's probably more of an art today as a parent with Gen Zers and talking to your teens and trying to stay connected and stay engaged and have those great conversations rather than just, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know? Yeah. So how do parents do that with a skill set? How can they develop that? What do they need to do, especially on these big issues of sexual identity and, you know, the stuff that they're having to deal with that maybe parents aren't even aware of? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. I, I would say one of the biggest things for any parent listening right now is to evaluate right now. Not saying you're a bad parent. We're, in our, we're not trying to achieve to be a perfect parent. You are called to be the parent that God has called you to be for your children. God does not make mistakes. So you're right where you need to be. First thing you have to evaluate and you jump into these conversations, whatever it is, again, depending on the age, depending on the subject matter and the situation, is to be present Mm-hmm. that you are willing and able to be present with each one of your kids, whether you have one in the home and it's a preteen or you have two adult children, be present in their life. Now, when it, when it comes to having these type of conversations, I like to tell uh, parents to consider two options in the flesh that is not God honoring and led by the spirit, an avoider and an aggressor. Mm-hmm. The avoider, obviously, clearly, you know you should talk about it. You're afraid to talk about it and you don't say anything, right? Well, what message does that send the kids? In actual fact, here's what's interesting to encourage parents. When our young people are struggling through something, a decision that needs to be made, stress, conflict, and they're looking for some form of resolution, but they don't know what that is. They'll do two things immediately. One, listen to music, and number two, they wanna go talk to someone. So make sure that whatever your child is going through, that you're present there, you're not gonna be an avoider. And the other option in the flesh would be an aggressor. When if something you don't like, jumping in there and speaking down and belittling, right? Or if they have some type of progressive understanding of something in terms of sexuality. And I talk about this in the book to help people work through this parents because I get inundated with this all the time. That's not going to help. Instead, as a parent, you're an advocator. You're not the avoider, not the aggressor. You're someone who stands in the gap and is embracing where your child is at, where they're developing, where the growing pains are, where some of those struggles are, and how you can then help them navigate with a biblical worldview. Now, a lot of parents say, I try to do that. It gets defensive. I say, well, listen, they love you. They do respect you, but you also got to make sure that you respect them mm-hmm. and where they're at. Yeah. And if they're going down a path because you you failed, if you will, to recognize some things, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. That's actually the bigger question here, right? Is does there need to be any forgiveness before you jump into certain things? Because sometimes when it comes to this protest mentality among Gen Zers, they want to be a part of a activist group that's bringing change and social justice. When you interfere with that and you start telling what's wrong about that without listening as to why they embrace it, they're going to get very defensive. So that's what I try to encourage parents to do a better job. And then through that, as they learn and listen and be that advocator of God's truth to the person that they love, their child, 
then start getting better educated, whatever that particular topic is and share the resources that your son or daughter maybe is watching on TikTok or they're downloading from influential people. One thing I will say this in closing that my wife and I've done with each one of our kids as they've grown up and are two now in college is inviting their friends over for just hangout time and just discussion, right? No really agenda. It's not a lecture from me. It's just trying to get to know them and seeing where they're at. And then as you're feeding them and hanging out and playing some games, you ask some questions to see where they're at. And that has always been helpful because then I use that then to have discussions with my kids. Oh man, this is great stuff from Jason Jimenez. And I enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. The culture of Gen Z has changed dramatically from previous generations. And talking with Jason has been so helpful for unpacking those changes. And I hope this discussion will help you better reach and connect with young people around you, maybe beginning in your own home. As parents, we need to model a genuine love for the Lord. And as the scripture says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Let's be intentional about doing that. Let me just add, you know, my two sons, I've mentioned it a few times here, are right in that sweet spot of Gen Z. And I talk to them a lot about what they and their friends are talking about. And I would just encourage each of us to think about what God's purposes and what God's plans are for this generation. To say that we're nervous about who they are, their lack of depth of orthodoxy, those kinds of things are easy refrains for us as older Christians. But let me tell you what, God doesn't make mistakes. He knows who he put on this earth for this Gen Z generation. And I want to trust in that. He can change a life in a moment. He can change a heart with a dream, with an insight, uh, with a valley. So I would say, don't hold back. Pray for them. Pray that God will illuminate their hearts and souls and that they will become on fire for him. Also, let me urge you to get a copy of Jason's terrific book, Parenting Gen Z, Guiding Your Child Through a Hostile Culture. Jason has a ton of great ideas and insights in the book to help you influence your kids in a positive direction, countering much of the messaging from this culture. And I hope you'll support Refocus. Uh, This outreach wouldn't be possible without your financial help. We're listener supported, so let us know what the podcast means to you and make a gift to help us continue with it. Let's hear what Mike had to say recently. Hey, Jim, this is Mike Demingon. I'm an emergency room doctor in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I just wanted to say thank you for your wonderful podcast. I was just listening. I think your guest was Philip Yancey this October one. And um, it's just refreshing, so refreshing. Uh, you know, when I when I go through my phone and I'm looking at YouTube shorts and other things in the news, and it doesn't get, my spirit's not lifted. But my Lord, every time I listen to your podcast, my spirit is lifted. It just reminds me of the importance of us praying, staying in the Word, keeping Jesus as our focus. And you bring that with your podcast. And it's just wonderful and beautiful. Thank you so much. God bless. 
Mike, I really appreciate that. And thanks for taking time to let us know the impact that we're having. If you agree with Mike and you're being encouraged through these conversations, donate today to support the podcast. And for a gift of any amount, we'll send you the book, Parenting Gen Z, as our way of saying thank you. The link is in the show notes. Let me also direct you to a video series to help you equip your child or teen for difficult things that they will face in the culture. Also, help you pray for them and respond to tough questions that they may ask. Follow the link in the program notes to learn more. Okay, for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from Debbie. Hi, Jim. My teenagers, my son and my daughter, both spend a lot of time on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram, and I've noticed that they get a lot of their information from videos on the internet. And some of it's harmless, you know, like videos on cooking or clothing style, but more and more they seem to be talking about videos that they've seen about the news and even theology, and a lot of it seems to be misinformation. So what can I do to help them get information from more reliable sources and contradict the lies that they're hearing on the internet? Thank you. Debbie, you're asking a great question. Um, And again, I'm doing this with my own sons, and I will see an article that I read and believe and uh, typically have tried to verify, and I'll send that along to them, whether it's the war in Gaza or other things that they need some perspective on. So I would say be engaged, be intentional, look for those things that you can pass along to them, and then let them talk about their perspective. Uh, Don't cut them off, listen to your children express themselves, and then gently guide them in a way that is biblical that they can think about these things. Uh, Debbie, thanks for the question. And since I answered it here on the podcast, I'm going to send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Now, if you have a question for me, please send me a voicemail by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to know what's on your mind regarding issues in the culture and a question you've been pondering on how to influence others for Christ in these difficult times. Just click the tab in the episode notes, record your question, and I'll see if we can use it for the podcast. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. Tell your friends about it and like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, Pastor Rico Tice helps believers with simple and practical ways to share the Christian faith with others. The Lord opens up a door, but I pray that I'll have a real love for these people, that I'll be wanting to celebrate them. And I think, therefore, God's sovereign. He's put you at the barbecue next to this person. Find out about them. Ask questions. And, you know, as you do that, just ask the Lord. Say, Lord, you know, is there a question I can ask that just sees where they are spiritually? That's coming up on Monday, December 18th, on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like Him, talk like Him, walk like Him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.